I want to introduce you this morning to two contrasting men, uh, one at the beginning of this talk and one at the end. The first is this. Uh, No one has hated the Sermon on the Mount more than Frederick Nietzsche. He delivered perhaps the most convincing arguments in the last century against the Christian faith. The son and grandson of Lutheran pastors, he rejected Christianity during his student days. In 1888, the year before he went mad, he wrote his book, The Antichrist, a title he dared to apply to himself. It was the most violent anti-Christian polemic. He defines what is good as, quotes, all that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in mankind. And bad, as quotes, all that proceeds from weakness. He asked, what is more harmful than any vice? And he replied to his own question, active sympathy for the ill-constituted and weak. He sees Christianity as a religion of pity instead of a religion of power. Nothing, he writes, in our unhealthy modernity is more unhealthy than Christian pity. He despises the Christian conception of God. God as God of the sick, he calls him. God as spider. God as spirit. From which, quotes, everything strong, brave, masterful, and proud has been eliminated. In the entire New Testament, there is only one solitary figure to respect, and that is Pontius Pilate. Jesus, by contrast, he ridicules as God on the cross, and Christianity as mankind's greatest misfortune. I condemn Christianity, he wrote. The Christian church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has made of every value a disvalue. And in the last words of the book, he called for a revaluation of all values. But Jesus will not compromise his values to accommodate Nietzsche. Even though Nietzsche hated above all the last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. It may seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution. From the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility. But however hard we try to make peace with some people, they may refuse to live at peace with us. Now, notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being awkward, or eccentric, or objectionable, or because they are wild-eyed fanatics, or because they pursue a sectarian or political cause. Christians are called to live different from the world around us, but not unnecessarily different. A man walked into an antique shop and bought a grandfather clock. 
And because he couldn't carry it back in his car, the car wasn't long enough, he went home, got his bicycle, came back, perched the grandfather clock on his shoulders, got on his bicycle, and went off along the road. All went well until he turned a corner and didn't see a pedestrian on the sidewalk beside him, whom he knocked flying. The pedestrian picked himself up, dusted himself down, and shouted after him, Why can't you wear a wristwatch like everybody else? (laughs) Christians are called to be different, but not unnecessarily. Indeed, do you know, Peter, in his first letter, warns three times not to suffer and call it persecution for our ineptness or our wrongdoing or interfering in other people's business. What credit is it to you if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. Again, if you suffer, it should not be as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And again, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, the blessing here is restricted to those who suffer persecution because of righteousness, not because of self-righteousness, not because they have a martyr complex. To put it simply, the believers described here are those determined to live as Jesus lived. It's simply that. And Jesus is telling us that that will have certain consequences which will not always be popular. So you may be ridiculed by your family, even in a good and loving family. Your relatives may be slightly wary of you, even in a secure and understanding home. You may be a Christian at school or college, A survey of the University of Wales among urban 9- to 10-year-old children and 13- to 15-year-old teenagers reveals that those holding a religious conviction are a third more likely to be bullied, persecuted for their faith. You may be ostracized by your neighbors, avoided by your colleagues, discriminated against by your employer. The reward for being persecuted, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. The same as the first beatitude. So the two are like bookends. Just as a person must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven, so will she be persecuted because of righteousness if she is to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the final beatitude becomes one of the most searching of all of them, doesn't it? It binds up the others. If the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may fairly be asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. Indeed, if there is no righteousness, how shall he enter the kingdom? So the basic principle is this. The Christian lives in a sinful world. Therefore, if he or she exhibits genuine, transparent righteousness, 
you will be rejected by some, maybe many. Authentic righteousness both condemns people and attracts people. And so Christ's disciples, by their right living, will actually divide people around them, repel some, draw others. Now, Jesus himself said this, John chapter 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So that is why Paul, the apostle, adds, for example, in Philippians chapter 1, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And famously in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in fact, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no exception. One of the motives that prompted all our community ministries was the thought-provoking question, some of you will remember it, what would it take to become the best friend of the borough council? It's a good question, but a dangerous one as well. In the Luke version of the Beatitudes, Jesus warns, Woe to you, beware, when all men speak well of you. That's Jesus speaking to us. For that, he says, is how their fathers treated the false prophets. In other words, one of the signs of the false disciple, the one who misrepresents Jesus, is that they will tend to be popular with everybody. Whereas in verse 12 here in Matthew 5, the true prophets, he says, were the ones before you who were persecuted. So the contrast is exact, isn't it? Persecution is as much the lot of the true disciple as popularity is of the false disciple. Of course, beware when all men speak ill of you. that probably means something has gone equally astray. A true Christian witness will divide opinion. But beware if everyone speaks well of you. Something has gone wrong in your Christian life and witness. And so we shouldn't be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather surprised if it does not. Now, let me point out, this final beatitude is so important. It's not only the final one. It is special, indeed unique, among all the others. And for all these reasons. First, it's the only one that Jesus expands. 
It occupies three whole verses. Just look at it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Secondly, it's the only one Jesus directs personally. Jesus makes it more pointed by changing from the third person, blessed are they, to the second person, you. Blessed are you. A direct personal address. Thirdly, it's the only one Jesus broadens. He includes insults and false malicious words. So it's not limited to physical opposition or torture. Fourthly, it's the only one Jesus parallels explicitly explicitly with himself. The phrase, because of righteousness, Jesus now parallels because of me. And they are, of course, the same thing. Because as we saw last week, Jesus has been talking of himself. The righteousness of life he has in view is the imitation of himself. If that's not enough, fifthly, it's the only one Jesus adds a command. Rejoice. Be glad. We're not to retaliate as the natural man or woman in us does. We're not to sulk like a child. We're not to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog. We're not to grin and bear it like a stoic. We're not to pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We're to rejoice as Only a Christian can rejoice. Sixth is the only one Jesus enlarges on the reward. It's not just theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but great is your reward in heaven. So that far from being depressing, their suffering is a triumphant sign of the kingdom. Just as the Apostle Paul wrote to Corinth, Our light and momentary troubles, he said, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We may lose everything on earth, but we shall inherit everything in heaven. And not as a merit, because the reward is free. It's a gift. And then seventh, it's the only one Jesus adds a word of reassurance. In the same way, he says, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So persecution is a token of genuineness. Perhaps, dare I say this, perhaps the greatest token. It's the certificate of Christian authenticity. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let me apply this in a number of directions. It applies, of course, maybe first and foremost to the worldwide church. The global church is, on the whole, a persecuted church. 
under the attack of religious and racial hatred. That is normal church experience in the world today. It's just that we, by contrast, are abnormal, relatively comfortable. We tend to think we're safe. But no church in this country can afford to stand aloof and just watch from the sidelines. Ben and Gloria Quashi. Gloria was her home invaded by Boko Haram. She was beaten, rendered blind, stripped naked, and dragged through the streets of Joss. And that wasn't all. Incidentally, in hospital a day or two later, in answer to prayer, she was miraculously and instantly healed of her blindness. Great suffering can bring great healing. But no church in this country can afford to stand aloof. Perhaps our first priority as a church, before anything else that we do, should be our prayers, our aid, our resources, our messages, and our money, even our visits to express our solidarity with our persecuted brothers and sisters. Also, incidentally, persecuted Jews and Muslims. It applies to church networks. For example, in this country, the popular charismatic networks, alongside the less popular conservative church networks, where our more conservative brothers and sisters are being marginalized. The call to reformation is always going to be painful in a disobedient church, whereas the call to renewal is deceptively dangerous because it will be generally popular in a dry church. It appears to promise new life through a wholly positive agenda, not condemning our waywardness, but satisfying our spiritual hunger and thirst. That is why it is usually met with approval. We may suspect your excesses, but we appreciate your life, to which we might add, and your money. The theologian Tom Smale understood this. He once wrote, When bishops begin to smile, we need to be careful. Not so careful, of course, that we do not smile back. It can mean, and partly does, that church leaders are recognizing the action of the Holy Spirit in the renewal. And we're getting ready to open all the structures of the church's life to the refreshing winds that are blowing. But we still need to be careful. Because alongside that, something else quite different could be happening as well. The spiritual renewal might be becoming not only respected, but also respectable, even fashionable. It is often the way of ecclesiastical institutions to nullify what the Spirit of God is doing, not by fighting it, but by taking it to their ample bosoms and hugging the breath out of it. Thirdly, it applies to the local church, and especially the growing or thriving congregation beside a struggling congregation. 
How easy it is for us when people join our church from another nearby church to welcome them with open arms and make no contact with the church from which they came. Of course, they tell us that we're the best thing since sliced bread, how unfulfilling the previous church was or how poor the vicar was. Or they say that most frustrating thing. We agreed, of course, with our previous vicar's beliefs, the uniqueness of Christ, the way of salvation, a Christian moral lifestyle, but not in the way that he stood for us. Well, we stand in solidarity with the struggling churches beside us or just stand aloof, gloating. Fourthly, it applies to the church leader. Some senior leaders are embattled, while others are relatively secure. Now, as I said, we mustn't court a persecution complex. But there are churches, for example, in China today, in which pastors can only be appointed to senior leadership of the church, provided they have been in prison for their faith. Wow. If vicars were only instituted in this country on that basis, I don't know of a single Church of England church that would have a vicar. There are some who've been in prison for other reasons, but none that I know of for their faith. But the Chinese example remains. The church leader to be trusted, that is Brother Yun, incidentally. The Chinese church leader gives us the example that the church leader to be trusted, the one worth following, is the one who has been maligned, opposed, misrepresented. Until that has happened, however gifted their theological expertise, however admirable their sound CV, however popular and persuasive their preaching, they are untested and to be followed only with caution. Paradoxically, the only church leader with a reputation to be trusted is the one with a reputation mistrusted. Do You see, the one with an honored reputation is the one with a dishonored reputation. And finally, this applies to every one of us as an individual Christian. The Bible believer under attack in the secular workplace, sometimes in our own family. Someone has written, first they came for the Christian bed and breakfast, but I don't use B&Bs, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for the Christian schools and teachers, but I don't have any children, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for Christian counselors and therapists and doctors, but I struggle with no inner heartaches. I have no illnesses, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for Christian lawyers, but I'm a law-abiding and righteous person, so I didn't speak up. Finally, they came for me, but I serve no use to anyone, and so no one spoke up. So, friends... Rise up. Rise up, St. Mark's. Identify with the global church and pray for it. Sympathize with the endangered local church. 
encourage the vulnerable church leader and stand alongside your brother and sister in the workplace, home, family, neighborhood who is under pressure. Bear the offense that they bear. And the other contrasting man. Few men in recent times understood more than Dietrich Bonhoeffer the inevitability of suffering. Born just like Nietzsche into the Lutheran church, but unlike Nietzsche, whose philosophy led straight to Nazism, Bonhoeffer never wavered in his Christian antagonism to Nazism. That meant imprisonment, torture, danger to his family, and finally execution. In April 1945, he was garroted. It was the fulfillment of all he'd believed and taught. He said, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. So it's not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. He went on. With every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people, and their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. And so the disciples are strangers in the world, unwelcome guests, disturbers of the peace. No wonder the world rejects them. And as we come to the close in this series, such a reversal of human values basic to the Christian faith. We've seen how topsy-turvy, how upside down the ways of God are to us. The culture of the world and the counterculture of Christ are diametrically opposed. God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. He calls the first last and the last first. He attributes greatness to the servant. He sends the rich away empty-handed. He declares the meek his heirs. He congratulates those whom the world most pities. He calls the world's rejects blessed. Shall we stand?